0: Welcome to this week's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy. And today on the podcast, we're going to dive into the top 25 transfer classes of 2021. We've talked about traditional recruiting classes with high school players, and junior college players. But this week, we're talking about the 25 best classes of four-year transfers with the inner the with the elimination of the rule that required players to sit out a year after transferring from four-year schools obviously there was a little more action in the transfer market this year and so we uh this year i guess for the first time have ranked a full 25 of of the transfer classes joe took the lead on that so we're going to get into that today as well as talk a little conference realignment um it's uh it's relevant kind of for two different perspectives right now the first being uh that there are some realignment rumors and actual realignment
1: uh movement happening uh within the last week in the and uh ovc and, and, and missouri valley so stuff to talk about there but also this year
0: uh, there are i guess a dozen schools that are moving into new conferences so it's uh it's been active it was active before you know the the SEC and the Big 12 got involved and, and it just continues to churn so we're going to uh get into the latest there as well here on this edition of the Baseball America College podcast which is presented by Rapsodo Rapsodo
1: has become the industry standard in player performance data coach And evaluation the Rapsoto national player
0: database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts you can check out the Rapsoto national player database at rapsodo.com slash national database all right joe we're here it's uh it's the end of september and uh we're we're, we're here to talk about some some transfer classes and you know it, this is kind of the last big recruiting piece that we're going to probably spend some time on in the in the podcast at least i still am writing up newcomer newcomer classes from around the country uh over at baseballamerica.com we had the big 12 go up already this week the big 10 uh will follow suit in a couple days here Uh, but but the the transfer classes is uh is one of the bigger pieces still and as you know we talked about last week with individual uh, players that the top 100 impact players there's uh there's been a fair amount of movement this year and, and and just uh a lot more to dive into uh than usual last year i think you did a top 10 of transfer classes this year uh, you went full top 25
2: yeah and last year was you know i did 10 and it was it was kind of like no they weren't even ranked it was kind of like notable transfer classes because last year there was so much it wasn't just that We it wasn't hundred percent clear on immediate eligibility for those transfers. Like we were kind of working under this assumption that basically they were they were going to be lenient. They being in Ciblay, it was going to be lenient with waivers. And but you never knew for sure. So like you were kind of projecting what these transfer classes would look like next year, but you didn't know that that was really necessarily going to be the case. And also you know there was COVID roster crunch situations and different programs, so you didn't know there was just a lot of unknown going into last. So it was like just threw some notable classes at the wall and didn't even rank them. And, um, I actually haven't even gone back and looked to see who I put on that list last year. I should have, that'd be an interesting exercise to go back and look and see how many impact players were on those lists. But, but this year, of course, is something different. We have a really clear look at who's going where. And, and we know those players will be at least eligible to, uh, compete for time immediately. And, and, uh, productive players immediately there are obviously some who who won't some who will and some who are rehabbing from injuries and and what have you but we do have a very clear picture of that now and it's a really fascinating exercise because as you have to uh, weigh in your recruiting class rankings like you know this that it's really tough when you've got this one class that's just a handful of players and I think this is even more exacerbated in in transfers because nobody in recruiting is just taking three players but in transfer classes you've got two or three player classes, all three guys are probably going to be regulars in their new high profile program. And on the other hand, you've got teams that are taking eight or nine players and six or seven of them are big question marks. And so, you, you know, just trying to figure out how you value those things is, is a really difficult exercise. So it's kind of what makes it fun though, is because there's, you know, all different types of classes. We've got small classes, we've got big classes, we've got classes full of productive veterans that are coming up from the mid-major ranks to classes full of guys who are, you know, high-end talents who have underperformed. So they really run the gamut of, of different types of, of classes. And so there's a little uh, little something for everyone in there. Um, and while there are a lot of big name, high profile programs ranked in this top 25 teams that'll compete for national titles this year, there are also some teams you may not expect to see, which I think speaks to something we talked about last week, which is that the types of teams that are really all in on the portal are pretty varied and they do it for a lot of different reasons.
0: Yeah. I mean, in, uh, at, at the top of the rankings, you've got Texas A&M and LSU, and those are two SEC programs with new coaches that, you know, went into the portal for some instant impact and, m spe- you know, really looking for, just to upgrade the roster quickly after finishing last place in the sec west um and just a game ahead of missouri uh for for the overall in the overall sec standings so they uh you know th- they make a lot of sense in, in, in terms of that but you know that's uh like we talked about last week a program that going forward you may not see play quite as heavily in the portal they might be a little more like arkansas or mississippi state which is uh, you know they've consistently over the past few years gone in and, and been very selective but also consistently been looking at, at grad transfers um or or now maybe a, a high impact player thats that's moving before he his, his graduate year like jaspar off at arkansas this year but you also have uh like kansas state or kentucky uh you know schools that that fit a, a little bit different profile so like, like you said a, a lot of different uh, ways that that are a lot of different types of schools that are approaching this and um you know it's also interesting which of these schools were heavily into junior college ranks before we, we like we talked about that like Kentucky and, and Oklahoma State are very into the transfer portal at this point previously they they recruited a lot of junior college players and they still have some some key junior college players but you know just that opened the door for other schools uh, to, to get better junior college talent than, than they're used to. So a lot about recruiting kind of is, is changing just based on the introduction of the portal. Uh, and, and when I say recruiting, I mean all aspects of it, not just, you know, the, the, the transfers and the junior college transfers, but, but all aspects of recruiting kind of change when you introduce the idea that players can be eligible immediately from four-year schools.
2: Yeah, it'll be fascinating to see how the transfer portal in baseball takes shape as time has gone on, as time goes on, and kind of look back on this maybe five years down the road and really take stock of not just are we seeing more or less movement, are we seeing more or less movement among high-end talent, but really which programs have continued to go all in, which programs initially went all in but decided it wasn't for them, and who has like the best hit rate? Because you definitely see this in other sports, right? Where, because football and basketball in particular have have long been so, up until recent years, been so restrictive on transfers. It's not just sitting out a year, but it's also that um, it was fairly uncommon. There were some high profile notable cases through history going all the way back to Troy Aikman, right? But there, there wasn't year to year, just this cottage industry of, of transfer portal watching and, and things like that. It was, it was not all that common, a, a thing to have happen, but you've seen as time has gone on where football, like especially at the quarterback position and grad, the, the, um, grad transfer thing for lack of better way of putting it has really changed the complexion of that because that's where it really started in football. But the quarterback shopping in free agency every year is like a very real thing now. To the point where I think now there's like some backlash to it, where there are some programs that are just like we're just we just don't do that, we're not you know what have you, but like with what Oklahoma has done, clearly you can see that this is effective if you get the right get the right guys. And so in basketball it's kind of the the same way. Where now there are certain programs that are just synonymous or coaches that are just synonymous with transfer portal movement. Dana Altman at Oregon is one guy. Eric Musselman, formerly of Nevada, now of Arkansas, famously a big transfer portal guy. So there are these programs that have become synonymous with it or have known to do it effectively. And I think that same thing will happen in baseball over time. And it's just a matter of seeing where that is Uh, to your point. I think some of what we saw in your, and and so I guess I should say this first is that I think it will also, you'll see a lot of, it really depends on your situation. A&M clearly needed a a roster shakeup. And, you know, I think a lot of coaches would have come into A&M and said, Hey, we're going to, we're going to go low and slow on this. We're going to, we'll, let's see what we have. Let's evaluate the roster. Um, let's take 2022 as like kind of a a year where we just kind of get a foundation set. And then we'll pick up speed after that. But Jim Schlossnagel to, to their credit, um, I think understood that, Hey, no, if we're, if we're going to be, this is Texas A&M and the expectation is we're going to be, uh, at a bare minimum, not the worst team in the West. We need to make changes now. And so they took a, they took a big class and they got a little bit of everything. Um, you know, you, you've got established aces and Micah Dallas, Texas tech. You've got productive mid-major players, Dylan rock from UTSA and Cole Kaler from Hawaii, you've got, you know, hard throwing high end pitchers, Trey Dillard from Missouri. You've got, you know, up and coming slugger and Jack Moss coming from Arizona state, veteran catcher, Troy Claunch from Oregon state. Um, like they just plugged a lot of holes, <laughs> you know, their, their, their lineup is going to be filled with, um, guys coming out of the transfer portal, which I think is going to be, um, their lineup in their, their pitching rotation and their, um, you know, bullpen. It's going to be loaded with guys coming from the transfer portal. That would be pretty, pretty new. And, um, but I would not bet on them being that type of team year after year. I think this was a, this was a one-off, but seeing those ebbs and flows over time, I think it's going to be the most interesting piece of this.
1: Well, I, I think
0: it's interesting what you said there, That that a lot of coaches might have you know taken a little slower at AM. And and I wonder, like that's the old philosophy, because you previously wouldn't have been able to do a whole lot. That uh, you would have been hired
1: in June. Ordinarily, the draft also would have been in June. Uh, but in third, I think when we were in Omaha, I think that's when it got announced. But like the second half of
0: June hired and then, you know, the draft was about a month later. There's just not a whole lot they would have been able to do with their recruiting class. They added one pretty prominent high school player uh, into their recruiting class, uh, came with Nate Yeske from Arizona, had been committed to Arizona, was a pitcher, followed Nate Yeske to, to AM. Uh, sometimes you can do that sometimes you can add a junior college player here or there but then i mean the
1: roster would have probably pretty much been the roster maybe they could have found a grad transfer which building now being an option uh if you're going to take over a program like an a m uh
0: or any highly prominent program in a a major conference i think this might be the way that that you want to go from here on out. And, and there are going to be a lot of people watching AM and very closely to see how this, how this happens. Obviously, Jim Schlossnagel is also a very experienced coach
1: and has a very good that kind of talent and it probably will help them understand how to manipulate the talent that
0: the players once they get there to to find the right assortment. But that's also not going to be easy. Maybe if you're a first time head coach, that's too much for you.
1: But you know I, I I think if you are And if it works, I think it might provide a
0: blueprint for other coaches moving into into jobs like this one. All right, so that was. The top class. We're uh, we're gonna get deeper into the rankings here in, in a minute. A lot, a lot of
1: other interesting classes following AM in these rankings. But first, check this out. All right, Joe, we talked about AM ranking number one. You mentioned the classes that let's uh let's look a little deeper. Into the top 25. What
0: um, you know, what, what did you feel like when you were putting the top 10 together maybe surprised you a little bit?
2: I was, I guess, surprised a little bit, you know, especially after I look at the first two classes, AM and LSU, they're both pretty hefty classes, like high-end talent, sure, but also a large number of, of people. Like I was actually surprised by how many top-end classes in the top 10 were really just a few players, but all three should be immediate contributors have high-end ability, uh, plug holes, all, kind of, or all of the above. Um, you know, when you talk about Arkansas at three uh, with Jace Borofan from our, uh, Oklahoma, uh, Chris Lanzilli from Wake Forest and Michael Turner from Kent State, all three guys that should at least project to be immediate contributors. You know, you get a little bit further down, it's a similar story with NC State. We talked about them last week with Lou James Gruber and Dominic Pauley from Charlotte, Josh Hood from Penn. Florida State, Alex Trout from Miami, Jordan and from Florida, Brett Roberts from Tennessee Tech. So those those classes are harder to place just because it's fewer players. Um, but there were a small handful with Tennessee also being in that mix um, in the top 10 with, with just three players. I was kind of surprised by how many of those there were, like teams that clearly had like a very small transfer board of guys they were looking for and then got those guys and end up with like really impact classes because they're going to have least in most in many cases, we'll have 100 hit rates in terms of those players becoming big time contributors right away.
0: Yeah, I uh, it's it's really challenging when you're trying to, you know just the philosophical question of what what constitutes a good class here. Uh, but I, I'm interested in what Florida State did, you know, Terrell coming from one of uh, the Seminoles biggest rivals in Miami. Uh, bringing a, a big proven bat, although one that hasn't always produced against the best programs. That's part of why he's still in college baseball as opposed to pro ball. And Jordan Carrion coming from their other big rival in, in Gainesville and all that he can do uh, for for them. And then Burt Roberts was pretty solid uh, this summer in the Cape and coming from Tennessee Tech. I mean, I, that that's one that kind of stands out to me. Looking through the the full of the top 25, it's SEC heavy. I suppose that's not particularly surprising. It's a uh, major conference heavy as well. Again, not particularly surprising. Uh, Coastal Carolina kind of bucks that a little bit at number 15, but then again, they're Coastal Carolina. And they've kind of always played in transfers, whether that's junior college or or full on transfers. So. Uh, not again, not particularly surprising Two programs though, that are major conference programs, but, but stand out to me a little bit here are pit. Uh, they come in at number 12 and Kansas state coming in at number 18. Both of those, uh, programs fell short of the NCAA tournament last year. Probably both feel a little bit hard done. Obviously pit definitely feels hard done after getting on the short list of potential host sites and then missing the NCAA tournament completely um, with the, the poor finish to their season. I know that left a very bitter taste uh, in everyone's mouth in, in Pittsburgh. And then Kansas State um, was a team, Joe, that you had uh, you know kind of identified as, as a, a sleeper team early in the year and never quite came together for the Wildcats, but they never really went away either. They made it to the big 12 tournament semifinals and had a decent enough RPI at the end, but it it just was a little short of a a tournament team, ultimately, but
1: as as those those programs look to take. Pittsburgh and Pete Hughes at Kansas State,
0: uh, they they bring in large classes, not. And and just kind of well-rounded classes overall. They've got some grad transfers. They've got some younger
1: players that can impact the program over multiple years. I mean, th- those are two kind of similar-looking groups that that I find. to be pretty interesting. Yeah, I'm with you on both. Actually, those are those are
2: a couple of good ones to call out. Pitt definitely feels like a program that feels like, oh, we were we were really really close in 2021. Let's not lose this momentum and make 2022 kind of a step back year before we get going again. Let's try to keep, you know, keep our foot on the gas here and and keep moving. And I think that this class should do a really good job of that. Um, you know, a couple of guys Tatum Levins and Jeff Whaler, interesting to me, Tatum Levins, a a big bat from LaSalle, who's been really good for them. His, uh, his few years there before they cut the program And, and Jeff Whaler, probably one of the more underrated guys who I had in the top 100 in terms of, Really productive hitter, does a lot of different things, both defensively and offensively. I'll be interested to see what he does there. But it is it is a well-rounded group for that, where I think that's plugging a lot of different holes. Kansas State is a little bit different. I think it's a similar philosophy because I do also think that they felt like they were really close last year. And the numbers show that they were a couple wins away from being right there in the at-large discussion. But they're interesting because they they do lose some talent when you talk about on the pitching staff, with a guy, starting with a guy like Jordan Wicks.
0: I mean, they Um, lost like five players to the draft, I think.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, they did lose some guys. So, you know, I think this may be an attempt to kind of preempt a step back in 2022. But I think what's interesting about the strategy or the apparent strategy, I guess I should say the apparent strategy here, because it's not like I've, I've talked to Pete Hughes or his staff about it explicitly. But it does seem like Kansas State has really gone all in on or at least heavily on highly regarded recruits who, for whatever reason, just didn't necessarily take on first attempt at their original program. So you're talking about Dom Johnson, highly regarded guy, just outside the top 300 on the BA 500 coming out of high school, goes to Oklahoma State, doesn't get much of an opportunity, you know, but has big time tools, most notably his speed. Let's see in year two if he can get it turned around here. Same deal with his teammate, Orlando Salinas from Oklahoma State, advanced defensive, middle infielder. Didn't play last year at Oklahoma State. Let's see if we can turn him into something here. Blake Adams at Arkansas, hard-throwing pitcher. Didn't get a lot of innings at Arkansas. Kind of wants to be a two-way player. Like, okay, let's give him a shot at that. Most notably, let's see if we can make him a weekend starter. Uh, Christian Ruback at Oklahoma, hard-throwing guy. Stats really aren't there. So, like, there are some exceptions to this. Josh Nikoloff from Columbia, productive player over several years there. Jeff Heinrich at South Carolina a little more proven there, at least in terms of the amount of playing time. So there are exceptions to this rule, but it is largely a transfer class made up of guys who are like post-hype recruits, if you will, Uh, guys that still have maybe some ceiling they haven't met in case they just making a bet that they're able to uh, get the the high reward in this high risk, high reward play.
0: And I I would venture a guess is, you know, a lot of these are coming from, Big 12 schools or, you know, Arkansas is, you know, very close to, to big 12 country, They're probably all players that Kansas state had a relationship during the recruiting process. I mean, Christian Rubeck, I think literally played for Pete Hughes or committed to Pete Hughes probably, uh, when he was at Oklahoma, I guess he probably didn't play for him. I'd have to look at the timeline to see how that all shakes out with the COVID year. It has it confused in my
1: head, but, um, you know, the, these are, these are, they were particularly active in recruiting them at,
0: at any time. But, you know, if, if you're coming from Oklahoma, um, you know, if you're an Oklahoma native, the Kansas State staff is going to know who you are. Um, so I, 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 there's, it's very interesting to see how that works out. Overall,
1: right now you can see Kansas State is really recruiting class and this, um, they are, they're all in on
0: like, plus speed athlete kind of players like dom johnson and uh it's i it's going to be interesting to to see what that kind of team looks like i you know that's uh not something that we see a ton of around the country uh so maybe they can find a little niche there and i mean at the very least it it makes for an exciting offense if uh if you've got a lineup full of guys that are always trying to take the extra base and and can really make things difficult on defenses. There are teams that that do this. It's not like a unique thought happening there, but uh, you know, you think about Louisville and how exciting they can be to watch at times. If Kansas State can can kind of get in that kind of mold, uh, that that could be uh, it. Could be something of a, a competitive advantage for them uh, in the Big Twelve.
2: It is a little bit of a zig when the rest of the Big Twelve zags. You know, Oklahoma State, Texas Tech, very different offenses. You know, those are like physical, big boppers in the lineup. So it also is a situation maybe where just being a little bit different than what everyone else is doing in the league can, can really help you. The other transfer classes stands out to me like Kansas state is Missouri. It feels like a similar attempt here. There aren't as many super young guys. There, 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 there aren't really any situations like Dom Johnson where it's just one year and now he's, he's moving, but it's a similar situation where this is really heavy on guys who had came in with a lot of pedigree. Carter Rustad from San Diego, uh, one of the best prep arms in the 2020 class that made it to college. Manor DeSantis, I think he, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, but the highest rated player who made it to campus in 2018. He was. Yeah. Um, Austin Morosas, a JUCO transfer who Charlotte. Well, highest spoke, position player, I should say. Right. Tomorrow Rocker. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that was Rocker's year. So highest position. But he was like top 30, though. Um, you know, Austin Morozas from Charlotte, uh, who came in last year with a lot of fanfare out of junior college. Um, you know, those three guys right there, um, different levels of success. Rustad had a really good shortened 2020 season, inconsistent 2021. Inconsistent could also describe Morozas' ear in Charlotte. DeSantis has never really hit at Florida State. He'll show occasional power. But then you take those three guys, you add on top of them, Austin Cheeley, a hard-throwing guy from Middle Tennessee whose numbers haven't been very good. Fox Liam, a big, strong power hitter at Coastal Carolina that hasn't produced yet. And then you got a couple of lower division guys who, you know, you you take flyers on those guys. Those are relatively local players uh, who put up numbers at their plate. But with those first five guys, you've got really loud tools that are clear as day. And it's just a matter of if they pop at Missouri. And so it it feels to me like this seems like a little too unkind, but it does feel like they're bought five lottery tickets and, you know, you're kind of hoping like two of them pop. Uh, They would take all five. Sure. But if, you know, to hits for a little more average or really locks in and hits 10 or 12 home runs. And Carter Rustad is your Friday guy. Like, okay, they'll take that, you know, um, because this feels a little bit more. K-State I think is still betting on, Hey, these guys might be productive players for us still three years down the road in the case of Adam Johnson or two years down the road. Um, Missouri's betting on, we need one really good year out of these guys to hit their potential and let's see if we can put it all together in 2022
0: zoo is in an interesting situation here
2: uh in that they have a shortstop like josh day
1: is back and they're very happy with what he provided last year and then they went out and they contains one of the better defensive shortstops coming to college
0: so i just don't know how their infield's gonna set up next year one of those guys is probably going to be a little bit of an odd man out, or have to go play in the outfield or something and uh it's it's gonna make for an interesting fall and and early spring while they uh while they sort everything out there in in como
1: yeah
2: no doubt i mean it's we talked about this this is you know um kind of what we talked about last week where it's you know schools like missouri where they know they're not going to they they it, you know, if they're realistic about it, I'm sure they are, they're not going to recruit with the best in the SEC. And so sometimes you have to take some risks. And I think this transfer classes has got some risk in it. And, you know, it's, it's relatively reasonable risk because if, you know, Nando DeSantis doesn't perform any better than he did at FSU, he's going to be there one year and then you move on. So there's, it, it's manageable risk, but it is risk because, um, you know, the thing about these situations, if you bring in these large transfer classes and we see this with juco's from time to time too large juco classes that when they don't work they really don't seem to work and so there is some some risk there as far as that goes the smattering i mentioned smaller classes smattering just quickly of two-man classes here throughout and boy these are really hard to place um so i mean the first one of which is is a' miss at 13. we talked about that one last week so we won't dive too much there but jack Washburn, John Gaddis. Two-man class, both were ranked highly in our top 100 transfers, both address a need, so they kind of get a little bit of benefit of the doubt there. Mississippi State is not too far behind, as I scroll here, 17, R.J. Yeager from Mercer, Jess Davis from UAB. Uh, Mississippi State gets a little bit of a bump just because they seem to be good at this in terms of really fitting need, so they end up getting a little bit of uh, benefit of the doubt there. Miami, the class we talked about before, led by Max Warmero Jr., they also got Jacob Burke, from Southeastern Louisiana. So, a few two man classes there. Um, you know, we talked about last week how difficult it can be, but I think in all of those cases, those are situations where it would be shocking if those six players in those three two man classes aren't, you know, big contributors for their teams next year.
0: Yeah, certainly will be interesting, especially um, at Miami. I feel like they really need those two guys, uh, and Ole Miss needs them. To, I, I feel like they don't need them as much in Starkville. Like They're definitely going to look for Jaeger and Davis to be contributors, but I feel like there's a little more around them, whereas if you're bringing in a catcher who you expect to be your, your starting catcher in, in Maxwell Romero Jr., or you're bringing in a Team USA arm uh, like Ole misses is, uh, there's, there's a little more expectation
1: and, and a little more pressure riding on, on those guys' shoulders. and Coral Gabriel, Coral Gables and Oxford. Yeah, a couple of the, just quickly, a couple of the classes that were near misses for me, and I don't have
2: them like extensively written down here, but Clemson I considered, but they were a two-man class and they don't, their guys weren't highly ranked. They might be, I have to look at this, the only team that had two players in the top 100 who was not a rank that was not a ranked class. That's because it was literally only those two players. One is Tyler Corbett uh, from the Citadel, uh, second baseman from the Citadel. I think he's going to be a real catalyst for Clemson. I really like him as a player. The other is Benjamin Blackwell from Dayton. Uh, he's a shortstop who had a breakout year with the bat in 2021. So Clemson's kind of hoping that that breakout was real and not just, um, you know, a good four months of his, uh, of his career. So uh, two-man class there that, that was considered. Texas is also considered, and and they had kind of a fascinating class because it is uh, outside of Skylar Messenger from Kansas, who I think they're basically hoping is the 2022 version of what Benjamin Sims was for Michigan as a transfer from Kansas uh, last year, other than him, it is a class full of kind of um, younger guys who I think they obviously, they realized that they don't need a ton of help this year. Uh, the team is very good. I, so I think it's a, a couple, a few younger guys. I think they're just kind of hoping that maybe you're more of something in 23 or 24. So that was a class I considered largely on the strength of messenger um, plus the, you know, the potential of the other guys, but ended up missing the cut.
0: Will be interesting to uh, to look back at this uh, this year. Like I said earlier, I mean, the, there's a lot of experimental uh, feeling to this. Just it's so new. We'll see where it goes and uh, you know see see how the portal continues to to affect teams. But it is going to be a roster building aspect going forward for everyone around the country. Really, that that has to has to deal with it either with players going in or going out or both. Uh, So certainly going to be something we continue to to revisit here on the Baseball America College podcast and over on the website where you can read the full top 25 classes. Uh, All right, Joe, let's uh, let's dive into a little
1: bit of realignment. Um, I guess the multiple reports suggesting that the American Athletic Conference is close to
0: kind of finalizing its plans for replacing the three schools it lost to the big 12, that's Cincinnati, Central Florida, and Houston. And it looks like initially, they're looking to bring on Air Force and Colorado State. And then that will not be the final bit of AAC expansion. There's a lot of talk about Alabama Birmingham, um, as well but it, it does look like the first pass is going to be air force and colorado state and from a baseball perspective colorado state does does nothing but add to the not insignificant collection of american athletic conference schools that don't play baseball uh air force is not going to help uh the american from an rpi standpoint necessarily although i am interested to see what their kind of national schedule does for them outside of the Mountain West if they're playing more games against schools like ECU and South Florida and Tulane, Wichita State. Um, but, you know, we had, we had Coach Kaz on the podcast a year ago. Then Air Force went out and had a pretty good season. And it seems like things are kind of looking up at Air Force. And, and I don't know how immediately competitive, they would be in a a very difficult baseball conference. But they were on the edge of the at large debate at times this spring. And, um, you know, they have in, in Paul Skeens, their their catcher slash closer a a true star for the next few years. So you know, it's, uh, it's coming at an interesting time, assuming this, this uh, conference change does come to pass for for Air Force.
2: Yeah, that, that one really, really fascinating. And I, I'm a little bit, I don't want to say surprised because I'm not as, you know, I'm not well sourced in, in this. Like, like for example, our, our uh, friend Matt Brown, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago, is this stuff. But the American is interesting because you mentioned they have a lot of non-baseball playing members. They also, it's not unprecedented for them to have a service academy as a football member, but keep other sports in a different league. And so it's interesting that Air Force appears, at least based on these reports, to be going all in on the American as opposed to what Navy did, which is football in the American and other sports remain in the Patriot League. Maybe the Mountain West was not amenable to that. I mean, it Yeah, it takes, I, I
0: do think that's probably part of it, that the Patriot League didn't have Navy football to begin with. So when Navy sure. football joined the American, the Patriot League had nothing really to say about it. And also a little bit of, well, OK, if the Mountain West wasn't going to be OK with Air Force leaving for football, then why would they be really? Um, yeah. The where do you park the rest of your programs? Like, are you going to, like, say the Missouri Valley? And, you know, with that, is that is that positive? Like, I don't know. And then, uh, you know, if you're going to be in a conference with a ton of travel, I mean, Air Force is in an advantageous position to to be kind of a far-flung member in a conference anyway.
2: Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, as I, as you were talking I was I was think kind of thinking it through and I was like, well, you know, it's um plus I
0: mean with Colorado State and Air Force being in the most eastern members of the the Mountain West, I mean to become the most western members of the American probably not. I they might not see that much difference in travel anyway.
2: I think Air Force to Now, first of all, by the way, I mean one of these issues we run into when you talk about mid-major conferences and conference realignment is so much of it is made with football and and just to illustrate your basketball in mind that some of these schools end up getting hosed where you're sending your you know the administration is paying through the nose to send their you know uh, i don't want to pick a sport because it sounds like i'm picking on a sport but there's their non-revenue sports all getting on a plane to fly across the country to play conference games that just don't make any sense um air force though you know in, in our conversation with coach kaz like not as much of an issue with air force those guys are um those guys are prepared to fly anywhere uh and and have the, the financial backing to to do so so not a, not an issue with them although i think frankly uh air force should have their teams fly fighter jets to their games they should just all fly in their full uniforms and uh <laughs> and by their uniforms, I don't mean their baseball uniforms. Oh, that'd be kind of fun if they were flying them in their baseball uniforms and they just got out and walked on the field and took in and out. Um, I I would like to propose that. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, from a baseball standpoint, um, if you're no disrespect to Air Force, and I agree with you on all accounts, um, they do seem like a program that has some momentum now. But when you talk about Colorado State not adding anything at all, Air Force, um, you know, not his, having a lot of history baseball wise. And even UAB, I I like the hire of Casey Dunn. Like, I think they got the right guy to try to maximize UAB, but they're not there yet. So if you're – I mean, I think UAB
0: can get better under Casey Dunn. Like, he won at Samford, but I do think they're going to have – if they're going to try to compete with Tulane and South Florida and East Carolina and, you know, schools like that, they're going to have to get a bigger investment than they've
2: shown to this point. Agreed. So if you're, I mean, if you're the baseball playing schools of the American that are left over, most notably, you know, East Carolina and and Tulane, you're kind of looking at this and you're going, Woof, this ain't this ain't it. You know, um now the schools that they were probably hoping for were never really the most attractive candidates. Southern Miss, you know, FAU. Um, you could have made an argument for rice. Um, that one makes a little more sense. But like Southern Miss and FAU were probably never gonna be on the tip of the tongue for being involved in this particular move. So those were kind of pipe dreams, but given what they've got and with the, with the possibility of Boise state still being among the more attractive candidates for the American, especially now since they've already made overtures to teams out West, um, that's not adding anything either. So um, not as far as these rumors go, the the baseball playing rumors, the American can't be overly thrilled uh, with what they've gotten so far, but I, I feel like they probably already knew that, that, um, that it was a pipe dream to, to be able to really enhance the conference from a baseball standpoint with what they were going to get this time around.
0: Well, I mean, you also heard Charlotte get talked about, and I know that Robert Woodard has only done this for one year really at at Charlotte, but what you saw last year out of Charlotte would have, that would have been pretty attractive. Coastal Carolina was getting talked about. And I felt like that was probably not super likely they're just the rise of Coastal Carolina as an athletic department is, is fast for sure, but that would have been a little more accelerated than I would have expected it to be uh, had they, um, or, or if they still get involved in this. But I mean, if you add either one of those schools into the American, I would feel a lot better if I was you know at ECU or USF or, or Tulane or Wichita uh, baseball. But, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it it was never going to be run by baseball. There were some better baseball playing members that you expected to be incorporated into the the discussions. But to this point right now, uh, this is kind of, I don't want to say worst case scenario because it probably could have been worse. But it's it's certainly not. Like I said, the last time we talked about, I guess, when the schools left the American, the days of the American. Contending for, you know, to to rank as high in conference RPI as number three, which they have done multiple times as a conference in, in their short the the short time that the conference has existed. Uh, I mean, they, they they sure looked like they were over, having lost the the three schools that they lost plus UConn a year ago. Uh, but if this is the additions, uh, I, I definitely think that 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 kind of situation is over, and then what does that mean for the Americans ability to
1: to get a host what does that mean for their ability to have a top eight seed um you know that schools that have those aspirations are going to have to schedule differently um in, in the non-conference
0: we'll uh, we'll just have to wait and see till all the dust settles on it but i i would think that right now they're gonna have to try a little bit harder to, to find some more high profile non-conference games than uh, some of them have have played to this point. I mean, I, I guess I'm thinking specifically of ECU, which just hasn't, you know, lives on, like gets really good RPIs in part because of the conference and in part because they play an incredibly taxing midweek schedule, but doesn't always, you know, they aren't a school that necessarily is is playing Mammoth weekend series every year. Um, they certainly have done so. I mean, they've played Virginia, uh, they've they've I think they did NC State as a weekend a few years ago. I mean, if, if they can they just need to go back to to doing something like
1: that, and um if they're going to have to make up RPI ground somewhere. Yeah, and you
2: know, Cliff's been enough places, Cliff Godwin has been enough places where I think they'll be able to pivot to do that pretty easily. the the tricky thing with them that we've talked about before is that it probably means East Carolina is going to have to play a few more road games and not just from an RPI standpoint, all that helps, but, you know, getting teams to Greenville is probably not the easiest thing in the world. I think East Carolina is actually a pretty attractive opponent because you don't lose much playing East Carolina. They're always going to be good. They're always going to push you. Yeah. You might get beat, but it's not going to hurt your metrics really. Um, but it is a difficult place to get to, and so you know that adds a little layer of complication to it. You know, maybe it means they maybe means they explore some tournament situations, um, or they get really aggressive with what they're doing with the LeClaire Classic, as it is right now. The, the Leclerc Classic, the tournament they play at East Carolina every year, um, is like one out of every three or four years is a banger. A couple of years ago, they had Ole Miss there, they had Indiana there. That was a really good one. In, in other years, it's not so much. So. Uh, maybe they just end up needing to get really aggressive with that every year. maybe that's part of the part of the solution, but you're right. I mean, they're going to have to, you're going to have to probably do something
1: here.
0: Well, so that is, uh, that is definitely one thing we're tracking. There was a bit of uh, realignment news that was actually announced this week. And that is Belmont is the latest school. That's going to leave the Ohio Valley conference. They will join the Missouri Valley conference. And from a baseball standpoint, I mean, belmont has potential but uh, i mean that's it's not as high profile as some of the other moves uh that we've seen uh roaming around the the more significant thing here joe i think is that the ohio valley conference is um reeling after after losing several members already and uh i mean they're just it, it's not it's not the conference it was a year ago that you, you were running through all the changes that they've had just in the last year. And it's, uh, it's rather significant.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a conference. that's it's bleeding right now, uh, frankly. And you know, the, you look at the, the teams that have left, it's a lot of their, a lot of their members that have upward mobility. It's Jacksonville state who threw a bunch of money at athletics, including a new baseball facility. You know, it's Eastern Kentucky that has, you know they were probably always going to leave because, frankly, from what I understand, Eastern Kentucky has like FBS football aspirations, so they were always going to have to move. But still, um, Belmont is one of the um, schools in the OVC. Um, it's a pretty rural conference, but they're in Nashville, so they've always had a little bit of over mobility just from the standpoint of hey, you're in a in a big city in a conference full of schools that are in pretty rural areas, so they've lost a lot of their firepower, not just from a a baseball standpoint, but just in general. And and now what you kind of have, it reminds me of of the debate we have uh, more so in football than in, than in baseball. But there's this debate about if you're a mid-major school that's been successful, do you want a coach who's going to come in and do a really, really good job for two years and then bounce to the next job? Because theoretically his two years of success has made the program that much more attractive moving forward, or do you wanna to try to find your forever coach, the coach that just loves being where they are and they, they end up being there for 15, 20 years and really build something. And there's an argument I think to be made on both sides. I think the OVC is in that kind of place now where the bad news is you've lost, like I said, these programs with upward mobility, uh, these schools with upward mobility athletically, or so it seems from the outside. The flip side is, um, There there are a lot of I mean, I feel like they're in a similar place to Summit League now where the Summit League is kind of in this precarious position where they're kind of at such a low number that they have to kind of keep making sure they can stay eligible for postseason play in baseball specifically. And I'm sure it's happening in other sports. But on the flip side, they do have a lot of members that really aren't necessarily going anywhere. Um, you know, although Western Illinois has been rumored to be one of the teams going into the OBC. So it's funny how that works. But so what the OVC is left with is maybe a little bit of uh, maybe the most stable members they have. But I don't really know what we're looking at in terms of programs that you would feel really, really good about having growth potential in baseball specifically, but just more generally.
0: One other thing uh, that I saw this week was that Southern Indiana um, announced that they're going to explore a move from division two to division one. They weren't committing to it, uh, but they are actively exploring that idea and they acknowledged as much. Uh,
1: that would be a significant baseball move. The Screaming Eagles, yes, they are the Screaming Eagles, won the division fourteen 2014 and you know, the kind of, I mean, they, I don't know
0: exactly which conferences would be looking at them, but I bet the Ohio Valley is one of them. Um, and I think they could go in and compete in the Ohio Valley or the summit league or wherever it is they end up in all likelihood, if they do make the move on the diamond, because, uh, you know, they, they have been a, it's not just those two national titles. They've just been a consistently really good program. And, you know we we've seen a lot of division two teams move up and continue to to be successful recently um you know looking at, at at Grand Canyon and Cal Baptist uh especially but you know even Merrimack had had some impressive moments and it's its early tenure as a as a division one program. So uh Southern Indiana would be a potential needle mover on the diamond if they do make a
2: move. And yeah, just to um give listeners kind of an idea here this did not necessarily make for great radio but i, I want to give you an idea of the, the totality here teddy mentioned 12 programs who for the 2022 baseball season so these are team schools that are in their new conferences right now for fall sports and then will be in the spring of, of 2022 here are the 12 that are in new, new places um new to the A sun central arkansas eastern kentucky jacksonville state um, Jacksonville State, Eastern Kentucky from the OVC, Central Arkansas from the Southland. Uh, in the Big South, North Carolina AT comes over from the MiAC, The Summit League, Northern Colorado joins as just a baseball member from the WAC, kind of a weird little deal there. And then St. Thomas of Minnesota comes up from Division III. Um, I have a story on the site from uh, last, uh, last year about St. Thomas kind of getting ready for that move. So that's there if you want to check that out. Moving to the SWAC. Bethune-Cookman, Florida A&M, both from the MiAC, And uh, in the WAC, Abilene Christian, Lamar, Sam Houston, and Stephen F. Austin all come out of the Southland. So that's all the movement uh, for the 2022 season. There's a few more that are on deck for 2023, including Belmont, Austin P moving to the A-Sun, Texas A&M Commerce coming up from Division II to the Southland, and then the big stuff, the Big 12 moves. The move to the SEC comes in, in years after that, but um, this is the most movement we've had in a in a long, long time. And it, to your point, it feels like we're we're just kind of right right now. It just feels like we're maybe at something like the midpoint of all this settling.
0: A lot happening for sure.
1: A lot <laughs> we're going to have to uh, you know remind ourselves of come uh, when conference previews come out. So uh, just something uh, to to
0: keep an eye on as, uh, as all of this continues to shake out, um, you know, we'll, we'll certainly continue talking about it and, and how all of it affects baseball, uh, here on the, the Baseball America College podcast. Joe, uh, before we get out of here today, we are recording this on, uh, the 29th uh, on Wednesday, which apparently is National Coffee Day. And so, you know, we don't have a guest to, to talk about sandwiches, so let's talk, uh, let's talk coffee. And if, uh, if you have any sort of standing idea of, of what your coffee order is.
2: I don't actually, uh, I'm surprised you uh, forgot this conversation from Omaha, where or maybe you're just teeing me up for it. Um, I actually do not. Drink, go with that. <laughs> I, I actually do not drink coffee. I have never purchased and drank my own cup of coffee. Now I actually said that to, so name drop coming, uh, I actually said that to Chris Burke in Omaha. And he was like, what do you mean? Do you just like take, do you just drink other people's cups? And I was like, no, <laughs> like what I mean is that I've never like, I've had people be like, Hey, try this. And I'll have a few sips of like either a cup of coffee they've given me or of their coffee, like with my wife, for example. Um, but I've never gone and got a cup of coffee for myself. I think a couple things are happening here. One is I have been for a long time. I drink too much diet soda. That is my caffeine of choice is diet soda. I drink too much of it. I know that the artificial sweeteners are not good for me, um, but here we are. We all have our vices in life. The second thing is my mom was an aggressive coffee drinker. I'll never forget going to a Mexican restaurant around the corner from our house growing up. and My mom would order like a plate of enchiladas and a cup of coffee. She drank coffee with everything. She drank coffee all day. And didn't switch to decaf, by the way. She was just someone who was so desensitized to it that it. She, she could still get to sleep. You know, she, but she drank coffee, morning, noon, and night. And I think it's just one of those things where, like, I was just around it so much as a kid. And she drank, by the way, uh, the, the, the crappy stuff. Like she drank it out of the, the metal tin you'd buy at the the grocery store for you know five dollars for the whole tin, you know. And then she'd stock up and put it in the freezer and it was just not the good stuff. Um, but I think I was just around it so much and smelled it so much as a kid. Like I just, and I had a couple sips as a kid. And of course, as a kid, coffee's not something that tastes good. And so I was just like, Oh, I don't, I don't want this. And I've just never really circled back on it. I do, however, and I actually had this conversation with my wife. I do predict I will start drinking coffee in the next five to seven years. I can feel it coming on. Like I'm starting to like, really like my wife loves coffee and like, is all about It's the next step
0: of your, your suburban dad life,
2: basically, which are are actually true. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, uh, yeah, I don't, yeah. I'm basically a dad except for having a kid at this point, but um, I should probably actually just go get my wife on this podcast, tell you about her coffee habits. That's more interesting, but, um, (laughs) but yeah, she's really into it. I suspect I will get there at some point. I am just not there right now.
0: It's uh, yeah, it's, I, I am, I guess somewhere in, in the middle, like I had a similar experience with coffee growing up in that my father drinks it all the time or drink it all the time and no time was too late for it and, and all the rest of it. But I became more of a tea drinker, uh, ultimately. And, um, I am, I am the weird one in my family for that. So national coffee day here on the baseball American college
2: podcast. Yeah. My, my wife also a big tea person. We went to, uh, we were in Boulder. This is a little recommendation incoming for people. Um, we were in Boulder a few weeks ago. My sister got married in Colorado, and, and we hung around and went to Boulder for a few days. And their sister cities with uh, Boulder is sister cities with Dushanbe, Tajikistan. And I guess as part of that arrangement, and most times sister city relationships are mostly ceremonial, but in this case, people from Tajikistan, I guess, came to Boulder, and they did like this kind of cultural exchange where they built in Tajikistan a traditional. Tajik tea house. And then so built it and then disassembled it and shipped it to Boulder and built it back up in Boulder. And so they have this traditional Tajik tea house there that serves, um, a full menu, full food menu, but they do like, they do like a tea service as well, traditional tea service. And it is gorgeous in there. Um, and, the food was really good I, I can't remember what I had I had like some sort of fish dish but it was in like a brothy um almost like a soup it was like sitting in a soup with some noodles kind of um but it was very very good um I forget what my my wife had but um she tried several different teas while we were there and, and really really enjoyed them and the tea list is like hundreds of teas long um but if you're in boulder the Dushanbe tea house the food is very good the tea is very good from what I understand but it's just kind of an experience. Um, that it's all hand painted inside and it's very ornately decorated, um, kind of just a unique experience. That I don't feel like you can get uh, you can get anywhere else. So because we didn't have a sandwich today, that's that's what we're doing. We're talking about coffee, tea, and the Duchesne Bay Tea House in Boulder.
0: I mean that uh, that does sound like a unique experience that you're not going to find too many other places. So no, it uh, was, but, yeah. the next time I'm in uh, I'm at University of Colorado
2: or they see right.
0: next time I'm at CU for a baseball game. Oh wait. <laughs>
2: Yeah. <laughs> beautiful campus. They should do baseball. The the vistas would be the views would be great. It's a beautiful campus.
0: All righty. So that's what we got for you today on the Baseball America College podcast. Uh thank you all for tuning in again this week. And we will be back next week with another edition. Uh probably with the guests this time. Uh, We've gone guestless the last couple of weeks, but uh, we'll get back to the guests next week here. As we continue through the off season with our weekly shows here, make sure to follow along, subscribe, rate, review, all the rest of that on your favorite podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, you can do that. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA and all of the articles we talked about can of course be found at baseballamerica.com. Thank you to Rapsodo for presenting this edition of the Baseball America College podcast and every episode. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next time.